Before history is written, it's played. Before it's frozen in time, it's fought one shift at a time. Before it's etched in silver, it's carved in ice. What happens next will last forever. The Stanley Cup Final on ABC and ESPN Plus begins Saturday. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey guys, I'm Sai, and welcome to Ace Podcast Nation, and welcome to episode number 44 of the Andy Campbell Show, associated with Black Diamond Sports International. We've got, uh, on Ace Podcast Nation, we've got podcast interviews and content on all sorts of subjects, from football, mental health, films and TV, MMA and boxing, and uh, and much, much more. You can find all of the shows at youtube.com slash ace podcast nation if you like to watch in video or if you prefer to download you can get them at all the usual podcasting apps and platforms and all the links are at our social media pages we are live on youtube facebook and periscope or twitter and uh, we are also later in this week we'll be on red army uh, tv's radio station so uh, we welcome all the viewers or less listeners from uh, from them in the future, I suppose, and uh, we're obviously it's another link for the show, which we're uh, we're very happy to keep keep progressing, keep getting more links and uh, and more people supporting the show. Uh, on the point of supporting the show, I just wanted to take this time to uh, to thank Martin and Black Diamond Sports for all their help and support, especially recently. Uh, BDS is a or Black Diamond Sports is a global sports agency representing sports stars around the world, and uh, yeah. They've done a hell of a lot recently, helping me, particularly Martin and uh, indeed Stacey and Andy, uh, been supporting me a great deal. And I just wanted to take that opportunity to thank them. And joining me to talk some football and uh, various other things, of course, my usual partner in in crime is uh, the speed demon, the goal collector, Card City legend, Middlesbrough legend. Mr. Andy Campbell, how are you, sir? Hi, I'm excellent, mate. Looking forward to this one. You know what I mean? I've I've known our guest uh, quite a long time. Uh, we go back uh, go back a very very long time. So I'm really interested to uh, hear uh, some of his stories. Really interested. Indeed, me too. I've uh, been looking forward to it. And uh, also joining us is uh, former England team managing director. He also worked with Wales as a tournament uh, consultant for the year leading up to the Euro 2016 tournament across all areas. And it's uh, Mr. Adrian Bevington. Wade, welcome, Adrian. How are you? 
I'm really good. Delighted to be here, chaps. And uh, yeah, hopefully I don't disappoint with the conversation. So uh, yeah, you won't. Good. You won't, mate. I tell you, you won't. No, absolutely. I'd be a lot of interesting stuff. And I, uh, I was just saying to, to Andy just before we went on air that I didn't even realise that you had uh, been working with uh, the, Wel the Welsh, you know, the Welsh squad or the Welsh FA uh, at all, let alone in that period, which obviously was a, a very successful uh, period for Wales, uh, which we'll get on to a bit later, a bit later. But um, first of all, really, just kind of, I've, we ask all our guests this. Me and Andy have kind of talked it to death. But um, I was interested in your your views on Project Restart and the and the season uh, restarting. You know, obviously in the wake of an ongoing global pandemic, really, Adrian. Um, I think where where we are now, having seen what we've seen in Germany, um, and the fact that they've managed to you know, have, was it five rounds of fixtures now in Germany without any problems? And the fact that we've had so many um, tests taking place now of the players and the staff who would be involved at the clubs, both in the Premier League and in the Championship, I think what we're seeing is that all roads, in my opinion, quite rightly, lead to the games coming back to uh, our screens in England and taking place admittedly in the empty stadium so I'm, I'm an advocate of it I was very much of the view that there had to be good consultation with the players and the coaches and you know the match officials etc in the period leading up to this everything had to be done to make it as secure as possible um, but I do think that it's the right decision and I think the Premier League you know we talk about project restart specifically with the Premier League um, I think they've gone about it in a pretty good way uh, and I think they'll be using a lot of innovation as we move forward too. So I'm certainly looking forward to it. So did you always think it was going to happen, Adrian? You know what I mean? Because I was, I was sceptical at the start. I was, I changed my opinion uh, probably overnight sometimes, and uh, I was getting a little bit frustrated what what I was hearing, what I was seeing. You know that I didn't really see a light at the end of the tunnel. Like, certain things were annoying me, and uh, and um, and I, I I I probably didn't see. I didn't see this lasting as long as it has. So, um, do you think it's just going to come back and we're going to finish the season and then start another season? How, how do you? What's your full take on it? Yeah, I think we will see the conclusion of this season. Then there'll be a short turnaround. I don't know the exact time frame, but yeah. it won't be as long as a normal closed season because we need to go again. And look, there are there are sort of a number of variables here. Yes, of course, there's the health and safety of players and all the participants. And that was the primary discussion, I guess, to begin with. And that's not just in the Premier League, but that's all leagues um, sat around Europe and the rest of the world. But in this country, Premier League and then the EFL clubs as well and the national game, which I know you're very much close to as well. Yeah. Um, once decisions have been made by individual leagues that they're going to they're gonna play, um, you know, I, I, I think I said on... A radio station about five weeks ago. I predicted it would take place the kickoff, the middle of June. I think I was about four days out from the the kickoff point. There's a main driver here beyond you know the sport and integrity, and we can all argue, you know, on on various points. But it's better to conclude the season from a sport and integrity point of view than not conclude the season, then have all the rows about who gets relegated, who gets promoted, who wins titles, who gets in the playoffs on mathematical formulas. You've got to do all you can to avoid that if you can get the games away safely. So beyond that, then there's the revenue aspect. 
And the, re the harsh reality is, and you can't divorce this completely from the rest of the debate, the clubs, the Premier League, the, the risk of losing £1.1 billion revenue is astronomical. In the Premier League, may well be a rich league. The clubs may well have massive income, but they've got huge outgoings. And so if you can get the league away, you've got to get the league away. Additionally, in, in the championship as well, you know, it's important to conclude it. They don't have the level of revenue coming through that the Premier League has anything like that, but it's still important to conclude it from the sport and integrity point of view. Where the discussion gets a little bit more cloudy is in League One and League Two because of the cost by putting games on in some cases for those clubs that have, you know, who are so reliant on the crowd flow coming through, whether it be on a match day or non-match day income. I think the issue uh, is, is in League One and League Two Ed, is, is um, obviously the sides who, who already know that their fate is in their, that, that same league, and you know what I mean. So they've got no issue and no and no really starting point of of coming back to do the season because it's going to be a it's going to cost them a heavy hit on financial. It's going to cost them to test. It's going to cost them to travel. It's going to cost them uh, to, to do all the various things and and obviously to pay wages as well because if if clubs have furloughed and they've got to. Then pay the wages. It's gonna it's gonna cause a huge uh, financial implication. And my only concern with the League One and League Two situation, um, while well, Sai comes back, um, is um, is is hopefully clubs don't fold. You know that um, back in the day when um, I, I don't know if this this happened all the time, Ed, but um, a lot of England youth games were played at Berry uh, at Gig Lane. And so when I came through, I played my first England game at Berry at Gig Lane, and and it always had a because of that game, it always it always had a had a real real place in my heart. Every time I played there for Middlesbrough, uh, I went there with Cardiff once in a pre-season friendly and I just loved playing there. It was, a, it was a family club. It was it was amazing to play there but I don't want any clubs to obviously fall like Berry have because it's obviously it's a, the 92 Football League clubs should have the opportunity to stay stay there forever really. Well, I think that's one of your biggest problems and I think, you know, that if, if we're looking at a long period, and look, I don't know exactly when crowds are going to be able to come back in because you know that's something that I can't possibly predict where I'm sat at this moment. But um, I just don't see without some additional funding, significant funding, how clubs further down the pyramid, you know, championship clubs, but certainly League One, League Two and below that, if they don't get further funding, I just don't see how it can be sustained when... You know, the, the, the overheads for running a football club, even outside of the elite, is still significant. And you're asking boards and wealthy individuals to contribute massive undertakings every month just to underwrite the wages and the operating costs of a football club. And if they, if, you know, if they can't carry on doing that for a year, who knows? I don't know how long till, till football can yeah. through the gates. They're going to have to look at whether the football family, um, you know, through the through the higher echelons, can support it with um, increased funding. But that's still a massive ask when, you know, whether it be the FA who are faced with massive financial challenges themselves at the moment that they've talked openly about, or whether the Premier League, who, you know, when you see reports that Tottenham, you know, I say reports, Tottenham being reportedly taking a loan of £175 million from the Bank of England, you know, Foot, foot, the, the clubs in the Premier League have got massive financial challenges themselves, barring one or two. So where's that money coming from? Does it come from government? Well, we all know the pressures that the government are under for, for, for operating the rest of society, quite honestly, 
you know, particularly with frontline services like the NHS. So if anything comes from public funding, it's got to be so well accounted for with a paper trail. And beyond that, it might be third-party commercial funding because there are a lot of companies out there at the moment in the world who are looking very closely at sport and looking very closely at football for, you know, capitalist inve capital investment from, you know, the firms that are currently operating outside of the UK. So um, they're the options available. I see them, but we do need some increased funding to protect all those clubs. Otherwise, I really, I really would worry that you'll uh, be able to see the, the, the pyramid that you talk about that you know. I totally agree. We, last week we had um, Cardiff City Chairman Member Dalman on, who was um, I'll use I'll use the word extremely uh, truthful, blunt. Um, I think he's worried quite a lot of Cardiff City fans uh, with with the figures and the truth that he, he came out with last week. Um, uh, monthly outgoings of three million pound are going out the bank every single month. Nothing's coming in, um, and you know what I mean. Uh, the players have took a wage deferral, um, but each one of them players will. Obviously, get that money back come the end of the season. So the club aren't gaining um, or saving any money in the in the long or short term. Um, and if that's just Cardiff City, yes, League One and League Two clubs won't have that kind of uh, outgoings per month. But the likes of Portsmouth, Sunderland, um, you know, big sides in the in, in in League One. You know that that, that trapdoor between uh, the Championship, who uh, you know, I mean, teams can drop down from the Premier League Championship League One. It's 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 quite concerning. You know that. Um, that clubs obviously have to have to have to deal with this, and and I remember uh, you might have seen it, it was a, it was an interview on Sky. It was a Port Vale chairwoman. Um, she just came straight out of um, out of the Zoom meeting about about the league, and, and she was visibly upset. I think she got really upset um, on on the on the interview about because um, they had a good chance to get promoted, and I I felt really sorry for her and for clubs in a similar similar position that um, they've worked hard all year, maybe for a two or three year program um, in a period to get promoted, and then all of a sudden it's taken away from them because. You know yourself in football that if, if a team does really well, players are going to get moved on very quickly. And, uh, and and by the summer, by next year, some of those players out of contract players, transferred players, they might move on to bigger and better things. And, and they're left with nobody and have to start on over over again in the same league. It's going to be so upsetting for clubs and fans alike. Well, I think there's a few things there. And, you know, one I would pick out immediately is you're talking about players and players potentially being out of contract. One of the biggest challenges is going to be if the clubs can't continue as, as they are, you know, you've got over a thousand players out of contract at the moment yeah. in the country. But what about, uh, what about Lyle Taylor? What, 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 what's your thoughts on that? You know, I've got my own take and I'll, and I'll, and I don't mind going well, first. You, if you want to go and take over, everyone's got their own opinion on it. No, but you, you, well, you have a, you know, you, you've got a better insight into that than I have because you're a player. I, yeah. I can see both sides of it. I really can because look, I think in reality, if you're, being paid by an organisation, you've got to fulfil your obligations for that organisation. Totally agree. Totally that, agree. That's normal life, and people, you know, who've been working as frontline workers for the NHS or other, you know, other frontline workers over this period, they they haven't had the ability to pick and choose. The only thing I would say where I fully understand where Lyle is coming from is look, his contract's out, and he has potentially got this big money move and he's at an age where he's only got a few years left of his career. This is his big payday. If he gets injured, what's going to happen to him at that point? And he misses the ball. That's the risk a lot of footballers take every time they cross the white line. I understand yeah. all that. But I, I try, I've, all my life, I always try to see things through, you know, from, from both sides of a debate or every side of the debate, depending on the people involved, because I think, I think you should get a better perspective that way. So, 
if I was a Charlton fan or if I, I was working at Charlton as a club, I, I would want Lyle to play and I'd be very frustrated if he wasn't playing. But I do understand his situation as well because he'll be worrying like crazy that if he gets in, he misses his big move. But that's my take on it. I think if uh, if I was a player, currently still a player, I, I think I'd, I would have a different take. Um, I think th- th- a completely different take on it. But I, I'm on the fence and I'm on the fence similar to you. That You know what I mean? For me... Um, his season, because Charlton weren't getting in the playoffs, his season would have finished um, early May, probably 7th of May, 10th of May, latest. You know what I mean? He wouldn't have had to go through the playoffs. Um, so he would have probably finished um, a good month ago now when he would have been ticking over, having a holiday, chilling out. He'd signed his, obviously, his pre-contact agreement with with with, with ex-club. You know what I mean? Obviously, there's a few rumours um, left, right and centre. But, you know what I mean? He's obviously done that and uh, good luck to him. But... For me, his contract runs till the end of this month. So, you know what I mean? If the season overlaps that, like it is going to do, for me, he's got to play to the end of this month. You know what I mean? So, if they get two games out of him, three games out of him, that might be enough to keep Charlton Athletic in the, in the, in the division. You know what I mean? They're going to find it hard with him. They're going to find it harder without him. And, um, you know what I mean? He's been their standout performer. He's been their main goal scorer. He's their best player, without a shadow of a doubt, um, in my opinion. Um, and I feel really sorry for the rest of the players, for the fans, for Lee Boyer. You know what I mean? I, Lee's been for me one of the one of the one of the best managers in the championship, and I know that sounds really stupid when he, when they're in the relegation zone. But you know what I mean for to get promoted to to push some of the bigger sides as he's, far as they did. Lee Boy has done a brilliant job at Charlton, and he's working very out on one of the lowest budgets in the league from everything that you're reading here. So again, you know Charlton are fighting for their lives. They're going to be fighting for their lives for for relegate to avoid relegation, and that just is part of the kind of perfect storm with this book. You know, we're talking about one specific player, but we all know that there are a lot of other players in this situation. The other point I would put you as a player is, if you're that player who maybe knows they've got a contract coming with another club, but you don't want to make any noise about it and you still carry on and you you play the games, are you going to be quite as committed? Hmm. Well, that's the, that's the follow-on, isn't it, Adrian? That, um, you know what I mean? If you're not going to be committed and you've got a, a younger player or another player who's... Who's going to run through the brick wall for um, for the club? You know, I mean, that, that's what you need. And Charlton are in a position; they're in an absolute dilemma where they've got to get by hook or by crook. They need to get out of it. You know what I mean? And uh, and people have said to me, "Well, I don't, I don't see, ne- I don't see why you're being negative on it because it, it'll mean Middlesbrough stay up because Charlton are going to get relegated." And and I've thought about it, and I've got to be honest, I've got to be, you know, what I mean, yes, it's it's a massive plus for Middlesbrough because it gives them a, a better opportunity to stay up. Of course, it does because it's one less team potentially. You know what I mean? But also, football clubs can't can't look at it as a given that one of their best players doesn't want to play. They can still pick points up. They can still win football matches. It it is what it is in football terms. But I just think I, I just think it's weird that weird that weird that it's been handled. You know what I mean? I'd love to see by the time the season finishes, Adrian, is how many players have not played because of the same reason, but haven't come out publicly and and, and done it the way that he's done it. You know what I mean? Or the way that Charlton have handled it. Have Charlton handled it wrong? Um, has Lyle handled it wrong? Has he been badly advised? And I genuinely am, but on one hand, we want people to be honest and transparent. Yeah, no, I totally agree. Then, then when someone is honest and transparent, you know, we then can't just hammer them because they've been honest and transparent. I think hmm. it's it's given people food for thought and you'll have everyone will have an individual view. And that's why I said at the outset of your question, you know, you're you're the you're the ex player here, I'm not. You know, you 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 will understand the mindset of the player better than I ever will because you know you also know what it's like if you go out on the pitch. If you're not 110 percent committed, you know the risk the risk of getting an injury anyway actually can be far greater. Well, yeah, it's just yeah, well, yeah, every time. Well, you've got, 
the, 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 what, I, what I was told probably towards the end of my career was uh, was was enjoy this because it could be a last, you know what I mean? And, and that stuck with me probably for the last two or three years that whatever level I played at, it was like, well, this could be my last game, so I'll enjoy it. If it's my last goal or it's my last win or however that may be, I just think... You know what I mean, but he's got he's got a bigger carrot at the end of it. He's got a, a big payday potentially. He's got, a, you know what I mean. If that's a, a club which is in Europe, if it's a club who's in a better division, you know what I mean. He's got to he's got to look after number one. He's got to look after his family. Football has changed in terms of. Uh, I'd probably say the career has got even shorter than it was when I played because players aren't playing as long because sometimes they don't choose to because they've got their fingers in different pies. They've got they've they've, they've got a life outside of football where. You know what I mean? Where, where predominantly when it was when when I was a player, everyone was just focused on play, 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 and you, you know what I mean. You played so many games in the season, and and it wasn't a case of burnout. You know what I mean? When obviously when, I, just, when, I just I just think here you've got a set of unique circumstances, and nobody nobody designed these circumstances. There isn't a hard fast roadmap that everyone follows. Yeah, and there's going to be you know this this is not this is not a perfect set of circumstances. However, this plays out, and when this all concluded. There will be clubs that are unhappy with the position they find themselves in and don't think they've been fairly treated. There'll be other clubs that benefit from it. There will be players that benefit from it. There'll be players that don't benefit from it. There'll be fans that are unhappy. There'll be different commercial organisations that are happier than others. Mm. And it's one of those things where you have to try and sort of rise above this and keep looking at the bigger picture. And, and, and my focus at the moment as someone who, look, I'm not directly involved in the game with a club or an organisation at the moment, but hopefully it will be at some point moving forward. I, I'm looking at the bigger picture and I want football to be concluded this season where to, to reduce the amount of damage, the collateral damage and fallout of the game from a, for the long, the, the long term. So getting it concluded, if we can, in a safe environment, finding a financial formula, finding a... Uh, hopefully finding money that drips down the system so that the smaller clubs can be protected, so that we protect the magic of the pyramid. Because our pyramid in, in, in England and Wales is actually something that I think is unique in world football, and it's such a historical pyramid. But also those clubs are at the heart of our communities. And you, you mentioned Berry there quite eloquently. We do not want to see... Towns and cities have clubs ripped out of the heart of those communities because mm. they, they create a sense of belonging. Not everybody has to go to football matches to feel that belonging. Mm. The, the positive effect of a football team doing remotely well can have such a good impact on society in those areas. So that for me is where I'm focusing my mind and attention at this moment in time. Welcome back, Sai, by the way. So it's nice to have you back. Cheers. Uh, <laughs> sorry, Amy, yeah, so, uh, so to move on. I, um, sorry, sorry Anne, Anne, can I just go, go back a minute? Just to, I no, caught some of what you guys were talking about while I was uh, rebooting my computer. Um, so we had a question from the live chat just regarding Lyle Taylor, really. Uh, Reese said uh, he would have thought that a pre-agreement meant that he's already signed to someone else. But regardless of whether he's injured or fit, if he's refusing to play, would Charlton then be able to refuse to pay him for not? Uh, fulfilling his contract? Oh, potentially, potentially for the rest of the se- rest of the seasons. But, is, but that's a month's wages, isn't it? So it's it's not even worth the probably the papers written on. Because but wouldn't they be able a... to like hold it against like if he refuses to work? Can't they roll on that month for afterwards? If you see what I mean? 
I don't. I, I, I don't think you can, you can. You can't withhold a contract, can you? You know, what I mean, you can't withhold a player. You know, what I mean, you could report him to the higher echelons in football potentially, but you, you're fighting losing battle. Charlton can't afford a pay. Charlton can't afford a case like that. And you don't want the publicity as well. I don't believe. I, I just don't believe that's what what will happen here. I don't yeah. think. I don't think I don't. it can happen. I haven't got the rules in front of me to give a categoric on that side, but my. My my understanding, Adrian. Adrian, you do. It's all up here. It's all up here. <laughs> my understanding will be that look, he's out of contract, and the contract is concluded at the point the season ends, basically, and he will move on, as is his right, to yeah. whoever he's going to sign for. And the debate really is about: is he going to cross the white line or not over the next nine games, however many it is to play. So obviously, obviously, Adrian, with with English football, British football, you know what I mean, comes then the decision what Scotland made. And um, obviously, I read uh, a couple of interviews, one on BBC, which you um, you spoke about the Scottish League, and then uh, and then things you put on, on social media. What's your what's your take on 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 the fairness and the decisions that they've made then? Because obviously, it was the decision was taken pretty quickly as well. Um, well they, did, they did go early um, the, the SPFL, and obviously it was. You know, it, it wasn't without controversy the way the vote was cast. You know, and there was certainly a lot of pushback from um, three or four clubs in particular with regards to that uh, the process, which seemed to be the one that caused most most angst. Look, I, again, I haven't got access to all the finances, and I think it's, you know you need to understand that before you give a really hard opinion on whether something's right or wrong. Um, the, what they are going to do, they're going to kick off the new season in August, by the looks of it, beginning of August. So in effect, they're going to go early in that regard. Um, there's a lot of there's a lot of discussion still going on in Scotland with regards to the restructuring of the league, proposed reformats from um, the owner of Hearts. Rangers themselves have put a counter proposal in, and again, that conjecture still seems, seems to be going around. So um, I think they went early with the decision. Personally, um, I think they could have given it a little bit more time. But like I said, I say that without being privy to all of the finances and what I don't know within that as well is when um, you know there will have been a reason with regards to the broadcast payments I believe that will have you know could they have released all the broadcast payments um, when they did if they hadn't have drawn a line of the season that I think that was part of the debate up there um, obviously, we had uh, we had Kevin McNaughton on the show. Um, I think I think it was just as the the, the announcement came on, say, wasn't it? And um, yeah. and obviously a vote a vote took place. And my argument with that was was um, Hearts are obviously going to want the season to finish because they they're relegated if, if if the decision goes against them. But the sides who were just above relegation, they've got no they've got no no positives to catch keep the season going. You know what I mean? Because points per game they would have stayed up because uh, Hearts were five points in relegation. If the if the season is null and void, then they stay in the SPL. SPL. It just it just didn't it just didn't make sense and added to me. The wider debate with, with this, and I, I said quite early in this whole process that um, I wasn't comfortable with teams being relegated if seasons aren't concluded. I totally agree because I think the the collateral damage if a team is relegated is huge, and if the season's not finished and you go on a mathematical formula. You know, that's when you end up with a lot of these discussions which you talked about at the very start there, Andy. And that that's why, from my point of view, you have to do... In England, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that everything is done to conclude the season, to avoid some of the rows that have gone up, gone up in Scotland. And again, it's back to the point I made, I'm repeating myself here, but this is going to be an imperfect solution. Yeah. I totally yeah, agree. Absolutely. Um, 
on a slightly slightly different subject, but the same sort of subject. Um, obviously, you just mentioned the Scottish FA, um, and I really wanted to ask you, Adrian, about uh, the potential possibilities for the the Scottish FA, the Welsh FA, the English FA, the Irish FA. You know, any of the relevant organisations, authorities, whether all the TV companies, is there an opportunity now for them to really push the boundaries with what's possible with digital digital content, the way they present shows, the the extra things that they can do with technology these days. Because yes. I feel like it's a good opportunity to change it up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you know we'll see we'll see slightly different things through the way that the the Premier League do things during the lockdown during sorry the restart period. Um, you know, let's be let's be honest. The, the Premier League have always been one of the great innovators in world football over the past what is it, twenty six years, twenty eight years? Sorry. So yes, I think now is the time. And I, you know, I've said this about up in Scotland in particular, where I've been on a radio show discussing it. Everything should be on the table as far as innovation. Now is the time more than ever for creative thinking. And you know, we should be looking at what other sports have done well. What other leagues have done well? We look at North America for a lot of our um, guidance on, you know, where they've done great documentaries, where they've gone behind the scenes and dug a little bit deeper, a bit more. You know, what can, what content can you create that's not been given before? The clubs will not want to give away everything for free, by the way, and I understand that because that is, you know, that's part of their. You know, they have that within their system. That's part of their, their gift to others, and that's a good commercial bargaining position. But now is the time to be as creative as possible, particularly while games are taking place behind closed doors. We've got to make sure that the fan engagement piece is really, really strong so that we don't lose supporters, because we know that losing supporters, once people turn off, it's difficult to get them engaged again. So simplistically, yes, for any governing body, any league, any club, and I know this is happening anywhere, fan engagement is at the heart of their thinking at this moment in time. So. I think this is a perfect time for me to come in about with, with me man crush. Uh, and just Simon Jordan, obviously, is a is a, a very outspoken individual. Um, in my eyes, he's he's absolute king. You know what I mean? I just love I love everything that comes out of his mouth at the minute. And he had an idea about, um, it was a, a Netflix type of um, scenario of football. And the more I listened to him, the more it made sense, the more I wanted to make it happen, the more it just, he's just full of ideas, you know, and I know he's an ex-Crystal Palace chairman and uh, he's very, like I said just then, he's very outspoken, but I, I, I do think a different idea and a different approach, as long as it, it suits the football clubs and it suits uh, the relative leagues, I don't see it being a bad idea. Well, the Netflix discussion that you're talking about is is just, an, it's not just, it's another part of the debate that's been going way, way before covid this, this is not a new discussion. Everybody no. knew that trends were changing, you know, and, you know, OTT uh, types of um, services as opposed to um, the more linear services that we've become accustomed to through the subscriptions that we have with our main broadcasters, you know, we are going to see multi-platform approaches to how we consume our football moving forward. You know, we've seen Amazon dip its toe in this season and do brilliantly with how they present the Premier League, Okay. We've seen Netflix, you know, whether it be Sunderland and the documentary series. We've seen Amazon get involved with others um, with their documentaries as well, which obviously is kind of carrying over what I said about what's happening in North America. I can very easily see a much cheaper subscription service because you've got to look at young fans. Young fans who are currently 
either in their teens or younger, are not going to consume football or sport off broadcast the way that we have consumed it. So the model will be remodeled. That was always going to happen. What we have to ensure is that stadiums are priced accordingly so that they're accessible for fans and for young fans so that we can have full stadiums to as much near capacity as possible moving forward. We also then have to have a broadcast model that is affordable and maybe sliced differently so that people will buy it in greater numbers. The Netflix example, you can have such a massive global audience through the Netflix model that's been talked about at a much cheaper fee. But then don't also lose sight of the brilliance of the broadcasters that we have currently got. Oh, yeah. And have built the model of the Premier League and the coverage that we get of the Football League. We shouldn't lose sight of that. Sky have been absolutely sensational for football in the UK. BT have been a great addition to it. And look mm. at the way they covered the Bundesliga of late. They've been yeah. like that. And I love the way that Amazon have come to the table. And let's not forget the wonderful coverage that BBC give us on radio and with their highlights on match the day. And we're going to have some free to air with the return of the Premier League for the first time and the coverage that other broadcasters such as ITV give us in different circumstances. So there's room for everybody in all of this. Mm. And it's going to be a fascinating time to see what works and what doesn't perhaps work. I'll second, I'll second that though about Sky. Sky have been superb and I don't believe, well, it wouldn't have happened. We wouldn't have had the kind of players who walk through the Premier League doors if, if it wasn't for Sky and, and the revenue and, and, the, and the publicity that, that, that they've brought with it. And you know what I mean? And when I, when I first came through um, at Middlesbrough, um, 96, you know what I mean? It was, it was getting bigger and you, I don't think you realise as a player how big and how much, how much power potentially Sky had um, down the line. You know, that the, the, obviously they've they played a big part in, uh, in, in, in the Premier League's football and, and the money and the parachute payments, which drops down, down, to the, down to the Championship. So it's, it's not just the Premier League they're having an impact on because it's making, you know, we talk about the Championship, or we, we did before lockdown, and you know what I mean, and, and, and the players that we're able to talk about now, Adrian, you know what I mean, it's, it's because of that Premier League money because the better players who aren't getting Premier League games are dropping into the Championship, you know what I mean, they're getting free agents. I'll use Lewis Holtby, for example. The current broadcast deal that we're in the midst of at the moment with the domestic rights and the international rights, which sometimes gets forgotten about in the debate, you know, that, and the brand of the Premier League is so strong globally, it brings in £9.2 billion over three years. That is an astronomical figure. And that's to the real credit of the 20 member clubs, but also the great work of the Premier League executive over the period in play and the way that's increased and increased and increased during that period you know they will need to be more creative with the different platforms they use to continue that growth but don't lose sight of how strong a brand it is globally um, huge Adrian I just wanted to kind of circle back a little bit just to what we were talking about with the broadcasters there um, one of the things which Sky do really well especially with the T20 cricket uh especially with some of the tournaments in the Caribbean and in Australia is they've innovated it by being able to speak to the players during the game or, you know, in breaks in game, drinks, breaks, things like that as the game's going along, which obviously engages the viewer further. Now I'm not suggesting that we speak to footballers during a game, but if companies or channels wanted to be, you know, real in 
innovative. They could speak to substitutes, potentially coaches uh, in a break and play or drinks breaks. Or because I know they're talking of having drinks breaks now when this, you know, when everything starts back up, because obviously it's later in the year. Um, is that something which you would like to see some sort of that type of innovation? Um, and also, I want to get your views on uh, artificial crowd noise. Okay, so the innovation with access to coaches and substitutes and, you know, we I've seen some examples of this already and we actually used to have, Sky did used to do a little bit of this with the development games with England. It happens, with, in, the, it happens in the FA Cup as well, doesn't it? They do it a little bit in the FA Cup. Yeah, so we've, we, we have seen, I mean, the BBC do that actually, yeah. so we've seen elements of that. So that's part of, you know, the innovation debate. I, I'm really excited to see what sort of stats can be brought onto the screen both in game and then around the edges as well. That's another, you know, the, the whole data piece is, is growing at an astronomical pace. So there's there's real innovation that can be used there. You know, we always kind of shy away a little bit from the sacred cow of the locker room. And, you know, then, you know, I've, I've been to basketball and I've been to NFL in the States and I've found myself with accreditation and I've been, you know, I've been to see um, a really big game. It was the uh, Patriots against the um, Miami Dolphins, uh, and, I, and I'm in the locker room within 15 minutes of the game finished. You know, while all the interviews have been, you know, conducted, it's amazing. But it's got to be done in a respectful way. Um, so that this is all still potentially part of a wider bargaining moving forward. I'm not saying they have to give it away immediately, but it's definitely part of that. So yeah, what was the second part of the question? I just wanted to to really know how you felt and also Andy um, about artificial crowd noise because I know it's got mixed responses from people I know they tried trialed it in Germany uh, recently as well I watched it at the weekend I've watched the Bundesliga every round I've always been a massive Bundesliga fan for over 20 years I go to games there live every year uh, and, and, and really enjoy the fan experience I, I was a little bit sceptical beforehand um, about the uh, the crowd noise being piped in um, I thought it was brilliant at the weekend, and I thought it added to the broadcast experience. It was miles better than I was expecting it to be. And actually, for the for the fan, if they set if if they set the, the ball up where they've got the cardboard cutouts like they had in Munching Gladbach, or they had the banners like they had in Leverkusen, where you can't actually see the empty seats, and you've got the noise coming around, which is legitimate noise from previous games, and they turn the volume up, up and down depending on the air and flow of the map. Brilliant. It really added to it. Oh, okay. What about I'm, you? I, 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 I think it needs to happen. You know, I, I'm, I've been quite vocal about um, reserve games, Adrian. That you know, I mean, for me, it's, it would feel and have that feel like a reserve game that you that you're playing in in a big stadium. You know, I mean, you can hear everything what's getting said. And I think as a player, sometimes you just wanna you wanna be in the zone. And you know, I mean, there's big there's big stakes on big big stakes here. You know, I mean, you're talking about Aston Villa, Norwich, for example, who were who were playing for their lives, and they need they need a little bit of um, something to, to 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 help them. For me personally, you know, what I mean, I just think I'm not sure with the Bundesliga. I start to be corrected here. I don't think the players can actually hear it. No, they do. They can't. All right, okay. I think if you have an option as a fan, whether you watch it, whether you red button or not. And uh, I think okay. So that, that's where we're at, at the moment. But look, again, I, I don't know what the options are available to every league, but that's certainly how the Bundesliga have um, adapted it so far. Have you been um, impressed with the way that they've done the they've done the, the, the comeback from lockdown now, Adrian? Yeah, I think, and I'm sure that's given confidence to every other league because yes, I agree. Yeah, you know, you, I, I like the fact as well they've got the, the 
watching it in this country with people like Rafa Honigstein, who's a really credible journalist who works for the um, Athletic, but has worked for lots of other broadcasters and publications. He gives fascinating insight. Watching someone like Owen Hargreaves, who knows that league inside out, and has some brilliant contacts. You know, the value of Owen's German experience in that studio has been great, but I think BT have done a great job, and they've been slightly, you know, they've pushed it a little bit. You get the Twitter feed now coming up as soon as the game finishes with people's comments coming out of the game. And I just think the more just nuanced um, additions of innovation that come up, it will help. Yeah, I think so. Um, Craig then uh, in the comments says, uh, with no fans in the ground, uh, what's wrong with the referees having microphones? We may understand their decisions uh, better. Uh, obviously, he followed that up with, by saying it works very well in rugby. Is this the opportunity to maybe finally mic up the officials for the TV viewer to, to hear? This is kind of the big, the, the big one, isn't it? I mean, I personally don't have a real problem with it. I think there's, but there's a significant pushback within the industry that obviously we'll hear a lot of bad language and then how on earth we manage that. I don't know, but I think, you know, look, let's be frank. Football is very different to rugby. And it's very different from the younger stages upwards, rightly or wrongly. It just is culturally different. So can, over time, if you start having referees mic'd up, would sort of behavioural changes take place? Possibly. But what you can't have on a live game is just completely um, audible bad language on a frequent basis. I'm not defending bad language, but it it's just part of something that is there in a lot of cases. And under you, you know, you 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 lived and breathed this more than I have. Mm. Well, I think the problem with uh, with making up for me is is the language and, and it's language in two different ways for me so it's language out of frustration so say as a centre forward you know I've got plenty of experience in missing missing a few chances so it's frustration in terms of if you shout out loud and you've got a referee near you and you, and you, and you use profanities then is that a bookable offence a sending off offence you know what I mean that's that's a different frustration but then you've got the other side of the fence where you um, you direct your language at the referee it's still the same thing because a child who's watching that game on TV is going to hear it. You know what I mean? And you're a role model. You know what I mean? You, the, the, these young kids are, are wanting to be um, the next Sergio Aguero. They start hearing bad language. Instinctively, I would quite like to see it if we can change that behavioural pattern. Because no, no, I, th I think, it, it, listen, if, if, if footballers could get anywhere near rugby and the respect, and I think that's the word I'd use, you know what I mean? Because ref, uh, the, the players call the referee, sir, and you know what I mean? And, and, there's, and there's a big respect in rugby, you know what I mean? And I think, I think, I think football's improved. I think it's massively improved, but I still think, you know what I mean? I, I, it's it's going to be let down, and it's how, it's how we punish language. It's, do, oh, we, do, we, do, we, do we use a sim bin then to. My German's not brilliant, but watching the football over the past four or five weeks in Germany... Give it a go. Particularly without the crowd noise that we've just had, I think you focus way more in a concentrated manner on the actual movements of the players, the, the body language and the shouting of the players. It would, I would say there was less confrontation towards officials than I've seen previously. And whether that was just something that kind of automatically occurred because they knew they were playing in a different type of environment, but it did seem to be that the behaviour in the main has been really good. It hasn't had any impact on the contact. You know, the physicality of the games are exactly as they were, and in some cases stronger. 
and the physical running of the players is definitely up there and, and has improved in some cases. But the behaviour has generally been pretty good. So it'll be fascinating to see how this plays out. Yeah, I'll second that because I think sometimes a crowd, uh, especially a home crowd, if there's a, a, a contentious decision, you know what I mean? Sometimes I can give a player an opportunity to go to a referee and, and ask the question, you know what I mean? And it, it, it depends on mood, it depends on what reaction you get from a referee, how then you react. And, and if there's nothing there and, and you don't really see the incident, sometimes you're, you're, pro, you, you're reactive instead of proactive. And I just think sometimes, you, you know what I mean? That, the crowd can have a negative an impact on a, on a player and... Um, I think I think I, I totally agree. You know what I mean? You are seeing, you know what I mean? You're seeing it competitive. You know what I mean? I watched um, uh, Leipzig on Saturday, and, and obviously the lad got sent off, kicked the ball away, frustrated. You know what I mean? So if there's a, if there's fifty thousand people there, no people there, the frustration and the, and, the, and the competitiveness and the aggression is still there, and and that's and that's obviously what we've got to keep hold of for the Premier League and the Championship coming back because football without fans, I was worried about, but football. Uh, without competitiveness and uh, aggression, you know what I mean. It's, it might as well not 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 take right. part. Um, so sticking with the Bundesliga, but uh, just moving on slightly, uh, Adrian. What we like to do each week is we'll pick like a couple of stories or news uh, newsworthy bits just to discuss them. Uh, so one of the things, well, Andy, you explained one of the things which you picked up on there for this week. Yeah, so I picked up uh, Jaden Sancho getting charged by the German FA for for breaking lockdown rules and getting his hair cut. And uh, I'm not sure your take on it, side, but you know what I mean. He's he's you know well, I don't know what what is your take on it. You know what I mean? Because I, I, well, that might be complicated. Look, so there's two ways to look at it for me. There's one where it's kind of like, is there more sorry, things? Sorry, 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 but you've have you had a Jason Sancho haircut? Is that what we? Is that what I've done? Right. <laughs> Well, last week I had a ponytail. This week I have not, and uh, I raised six hundred pounds for charity as well. There we go. Well done. Congrats. Oh, Why you having it done? Yeah, <laughs> I was. My I had that. My wife did it for me. But um, Jordan, Jaden Sancho. Now the big problem is obviously, did he break the whatever the regulations are at Germany in Germany at the moment with social distancing and going out for essentials? I don't know how strict they are currently in Germany so it's difficult for me to say my, my understanding is he did he did break the rule because right. I, I think Dortmund organised a barber for the players I think the issue wasn't about having his hair cut I think it was the fact he wasn't wearing the face mask and obviously the photograph then was published which is what landed him and I the see. other player in problem in, in trouble with the was actually the, the Dutch football sorry the, the German football league and obviously that resulted then in a fine which Jaden I know protested about on social media then deleted his tweet and then there was quite a bit of opposition pushback from that uh, about whether he should have been charged fined or not I think it was interesting after the game Emre Chan after the game on um, Saturday I believe it was was it when they played yeah, Chan came out because he, I think he scored in the game, Emery, and he he was very supportive, quite rightly in my opinion, of Jaden, who you know has conducted himself really well recently with the Black Lives Matters issues following uh, George Floyd's uh, death. Um, but he did say that you know he needed also you know he's a young he's a young person and he need, you know he needed just to you know help making the right decisions. So I think look, there isn't there isn't there's always going to be two different sides as to whether he should have been fined or not. Um, that's a decision that the league have taken. But my understanding is that he did 
um, break the rules. And so if, if he's broken the rules, they can justifiably fine him, whether that's agreeable with everybody or not, it's a different matter. Yeah, so, well, I, I think it's all. We, and, we've, and we've gone on about this uh, a long time, and it's about people learning from mistakes. And for me, it's a mistake. He's made a, he's made a, a bad judgment, you know what I mean? But for me, I don't know, you know... That, I don't know. Wrist slaps would, would would potentially be enough. You know what I mean? He's he's obviously then put a tweet out, which 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 for me, I think, has caused a bigger problem. That he's he's, he's causing a a bigger problem with a uh, with something which probably could have just gone unnoticed a little bit. That um, you know what I mean? Because obviously he took his shirt off the week before when he scored this when he scored his his, his hat trick uh, to um, to obviously celebrate uh, for his life. Um, you know what I mean, etc. But I just think. I just think for me sometimes these stories just 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 don't need to happen, and you know what I mean. I think he's made a he's made a mistake, and just 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 yeah, don't it. Just to, with it. It's not about excusing everything, but we have to accept that they are young people who are living under a great deal of scrutiny that mm. most of us will never experience. Yeah, and you've lived it to a degree, and me, um, and you know it's not. You know, most of us never encounter that, so. They're living under an unbelievable public lens and everybody, as you say, makes mistakes. None of us, or very few people, are perfect. So um, I think it's about being sensible about how you manage situations and supporting people and educating people as much as you possibly can on so many levels rather than always um, using a stick to beat people. Um. My dad's just put a, a question inside, so I'm gonna I'm gonna butt in and ask Adrian yeah, yeah. The, uh, the question. So, I mean, dad's put on Adrian. He's put uh, obviously with you being a, a keen follower in German football. Uh, why do you think the home win percentage in the Bundesliga since since lockdown has um, uh, has decreased? Well, it's it's been one of my kind of hobbies during this period, and I've put quite a bit out on social media about it. Um, after the last round, it was fifty. It, sorry, after four rounds, there was a. Um, exact 50% win ratio for the away teams. It dropped a little bit on the percentages at the weekend. Um, I'm tracking that quite closely. I don't think there's a def definitive answer at the moment. I mean, you've got to look at it where... Is it not the fix Is it not the fixes as well, away doing? Because obviously Bayern were away on Saturday at Leverkusen. Bayern, Bayern were away the week before. Yeah, you also... Well, you've played five rounds now, so um, there's been a fair flow of home and away for everybody. But look at a team like Wolfsburg, which I think have now gone... Well, since the restart, they've won. They've won. They've won three away and lost two at home. How do you, how do you account for that? To be fair, their their away form since the winter break has been unbelievable. I think they've they've played six and they've won five and lost one. Sorry, and drawn one away from home. Um, but then there's been you know some odd results where you might have, you know Frankfurt have really dipped in form, and I think it was Mines. Who've not been playing particularly well? Mines went to Frankfurt and won two 0 at the weekend. Yeah, so, well, well, wasn't it? Wasn't it Leipzig as well? Leipzig drew one all with bottom of the league. Well, yeah, Paderborn so get a draw at Leipzig, but yeah. you know Leipzig's form has been a bit patchy since they came back. So you know teams are coming back and not maybe playing quite as consistently in the same way as they've done before the restart. You've got the added factor of no home crowds that we're still kind of weighing up. Is it having a real impact or not? It's probably. It probably is levelling things out a little bit, you'd assume. But I think it's something that's going to be fascinating to see how that moves on in the Bundesliga and if there's any correlation when the English leagues start up and any others around Europe. The other aspect to that as well is obviously 
you've got teams in the Premier League fighting for relegation, promotion. Manchester United are on the brink of Europe. Sheffield United are on the brink of Champions League spots. Without their Sheffield United fans, for instance, in their home games, will teams find it easier to go there and pick up points? Same with Old Trafford or will Man United's away form improve or, or Liverpool's? Or, you know, there's so many aspects to it. Although Comparing that back to the, to the German, one of the, one of the, one of the teams that probably has the most fervent home support is Union Berlin. You know, they, they are absolutely fanatical with the noise they create in a really small ground. And they, they've, they've been patchy, very patchy since they came back. They've got a decent result at the weekend. But other than that, they've been really patchy. So, you know, I think time will tell. The points you make are absolutely fair points. It'll be interesting to see how a team like Sheffield United does on the wave they've been riding with brilliant home support during that period. Uh, I've got, a, I've got another question finally before we go on about Adrian, Adrian's uh, successful career. So, this is from Jamie. Um, what does Adrian think about the potential tournament style uh, resuming uh, of the MLS League? Does he think it'll work? Sorry, no, no, no relegation, no promotion. So, so similar to the MLS League, no promotion, no relegation. Well, as far as will it work, I don't really understand. Sorry, forgive me. As far as... That's all right. So let me uh, let me repeat. It doesn't make much sense to these normally, Jamie. So it's, it's, it must be that America uh, America uh, lingo. So what does anyone think about the potential tournament style resuming of the MLS league? Does he think it'll work where there's no relegation promotion issues in the league? So are they, are they carrying on? I haven't looked too closely at the MLS. So they're carrying on as normal? Yeah. Well, yeah, whenever I mean, they start, yeah. Yeah, I mean, obviously the American sports is different anyway, isn't it? Because they don't have the, the you know, they, they don't deal with relegation in the same way. They have closed leagues. That's part of the franchise system. Do you think that'd work? Do you think that'd work over here, though, Adrian? If we had, the, if we had, obviously, an elite league with, um... Um, I think, I think culturally it's just very different. It works in America, and I know that there's been some calls previously. I think it was um, the other Miami club, not not David Beckham's Miami, that um, they recently, you know, tried to test that out and wanted to introduce uh, relegation um, and promotion between the MLS and the the, the USL, if I'm not mistaken. Um, but that got declined because it's just it is a cultural thing in in in, the, in America where you know whether it be NHL, NFL, NBA, or now MLS, they they have closed leagues and that's the way it works. But that doesn't remove the competitiveness from the sport. You know, you you know, I, I've been to a dead rubber of a game in the in the NFL, and it was still an incredibly competitive game, and that was you know, played over just before Christmas one year, so. I still think you'll see a very competitive MLS when it returns because one of the great attributes for me of MLS is that the players, um, the players are so competitive. They're very hard-running teams. You know, sometimes the criticism of the MLS is they don't necessarily always have the same kind of playmakers that you have in other leagues around the world. But they're very um, honest, hard-working teams. Okay, going to put it better. Couldn't have put yeah, it better. indeed. Um, Andy, just before we move on then, mate, I've got a quick question for you. And then I've got a, a question which I want to ask um, Adrian before we start uh, covering Adrian's successful career. Can, um, we ban all, can we ban all these comments, by the way? I know. I'm getting abused in the chat, Adrian, about, about, me, about me hair. Oh, lack of, lack of it. Lack of it. So, um, so just on the subject of like no fans and the results changing, um, Gaz said a bit earlier on about the integrity of competitions uh, left for him earlier in the season 
when there was VAR, but it was only used at big grounds, but in the same round of the same competition. I think that's referring to the FA Cup. Mm. Um, do you agree with that, um, Andy? Oh, don't get me started about the FA Cup. The FA Cup, Adrian, is my absolute baby. I love it. You know, it's been very kind to me over... I wouldn't just say as a player, you know what I mean? I, I remember going to certain games with my dad. I remember um, I did an interview a couple of days ago um, uh, on social media and I used to love FA Cup final day. St. Greavesy started about nine o'clock in the morning. They showed every single goal from every single round of the FA Cup. They did interviews. They watched the buses come from the hotel to the game. You know what I mean? So the FA Cup's been, a, been amazing for me in my, in my football life. And um, I wasn't happy with them introducing... Uh, VAR to certain games, to Premier League games, uh, and the example I'll use, I think it was, uh, it was Watford against uh, Tranmere at home. Uh, it was finished three all, I think. I think Watford were three 0 up at half time, and, and there was three VAR decisions, which got Tranmere back in the game. Yes, they were all the correct decisions, but if that was the other way around, the decisions aren't unable to be made, and, and it didn't happen at Hartlepool against um, Cambridge, for example. But it happens at Watford, and I just don't think that that the fairness was allowed to be in. Yes, it's impossible to have. VAR every single game, but then don't start until certain rounds, and then put it into certain grounds if, if when you need it, start from the quarterfinal, and just have the integrity the same for everybody. Because the FA Cup is for me, it's the best cup competition, bar none for me. It's just, it's just amazing. I love it. Oh, I love it. I love it. And I won't have a bad word said about it. And if it does, I'll spit me dummy out and I'm going. <laughs> um. Okay. So. Uh... Adrian, I, there was one question I wanted to put to you, really, or just ask you about, really. Uh, you mentioned, obviously, we've got all the protests and everything which is going on at the moment. Um, and I really wanted to know if there was any an instance, when you were working as the England uh, team director, if there was any ever an instance of uh, maybe staff or players being racially abused. And, you know, obviously it was difficult to deal with if it was the case, but how you would go about dealing with it and... Just tell us about that, if it happened. Yeah, well, there's, there was, unfortunately, there's several instances. Um, there's one that, it's quite ironic that Andy's on the call here because Andy played in a game where it was one of the two worst experiences I've ever, I've ever encountered of uh, racist abuse inside of a stadium. The two games were actually both in Spain. One of them was an under-21 game when we played Yugoslavia, just before Yugoslavia was fragmented into other countries in a playoff game in Barcelona's mini-stadium on neutral ground. And some of the racial abuse that took place that day was um, quite unbelievable in front of what was a very small crowd in reality. And then when England went back in 2005 to Madrid, and played in the uh, Bernabeu, which obviously was an unbelievable thing to go back to go go to a game in the Bernabeu. But it was such an unsavoury experience that I, I'd never heard such loud uh, racial abuse of our black players that night. It was absolutely disgusting, disgraceful behaviour, and really upsetting. the The game I remember vividly that Andy played in when we won three 0 with a fantastic under twenty one team that night. Somewhere like so our real top players played. And after the game, Emil Heskey, who'd taken both an unbelievable amount of physical, violent abuse from the Yugoslavian players on the pitch, um, but also the racial abuse as well. Uh, I was still quite junior at the time, but we had a lot of the major journalists who were in Barcelona that night because 
uh, Kevin Keegan was the senior manager. He was at the game and he was about to pick his squad for the finals for Euro 2000. And Emil, who's one of the most unassuming people you'd ever meet in your life, very quiet person, um, he came in, this is from memory, he came into the press room with me and he spoke to the media. I think Frank Lampard was the captain and he might have come in as well. But I'm sure Emil came in the room that night and correct me if I'm wrong here, Andy, if I've got any of this from your memory. But um, the journalists were really supportive and it gave it gave the it gave the players a platform to just explain, you know, the horrific experience that they'd just gone through, which I feel is really important. You've got to give a voice to people in these circumstances. And I'm sitting here now as a you know a middle-aged white man who's never had to suffer any of this type of abuse, but for me to understand it is impossible in comparison to someone who's from a BNE background. Um, but after that game in Madrid as well, moving it on to, to 2005, I think it was actually cool. Um, Sean Wright Phillips took horrendous abuse that night, but I think it was actually who didn't do a lot of media by this point, actually volunteered and came and spoke to media after the game in sort of the, the mix zone compound afterwards and Again, I always just felt it was really important for us as an organisation to speak out vocally in support of the players and press UEFA or FIFA for action against whoever we were playing against, which we always did, but give the platform to the players if they wanted to, to come out and speak publicly because that is the most powerful message. 100%. I, um, <clears throat> I just... We, me and Andy have had to talk about instances of racial abuse in these 44 shows we've done, which we started the first week of the season or maybe the week before the start of the season. And we've had to talk about it, I think, and probably three or four times this season. It's outrageous, though, isn't it? You know what I mean? I think we, obviously, it was uh, brought to head with the Bulgaria incident in, uh, obviously, when the European Championships or World Cup qualifier, whatever it was. And and then, obviously, it happened with the uh, Legion United goalkeeper, um, obviously, in the Championship game. Um, and it's it's just just shouldn't it just shouldn't happen and you know what I mean I'll refer back to Adrian's point there about 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 Emil you know what I mean playing in the game I'll playing with I'll start with Emil Emil was the nicest most genuine softest lad I've, I've probably ever come across you know what I mean genuine you know what I mean and and uh, I'd probably say that the abuse that he took on the pitch was probably worse than he took it off it but he put, but he handled himself so well you know what I mean if someone's going to lose their temper and uh, and just react uh, off, off, you know what I mean? Some of the physical abuse, some of the comments, some of the, you know, I'm just downright uh, dirty tactics, you know what I mean? was just just horrific, but he handled himself impeccably, you know what I mean? And you could just tell the, the quality of the man, the quality of the player, you know what I mean? And it wasn't a surprise to me seeing him progress onto an unbelievable career um, for the club and national team because he just he just held himself in just unbelievable esteem and, and just you, 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 in his respect, but then you, you, but then you see the fallout after. So straight after the game, you're in the changing room, which is that for me the pinnacle of my football career at the time. And you, you've just qualified for a major tournament, and things are a little bit subdued because players are upset, players are unhappy, players are, uh, you know, what I mean, obviously really quiet because of things what have just happened on and off the pitch, and, and that shouldn't happen. You know what I mean? And we're going back now. Um, you know, I mean, twenty years, twenty-one years. You know what I mean? It's just ridiculous, and it's still happening, still happening now. And you know what I mean? Society, football. You know what I mean? It's never. It's just it doesn't seem like it's ever ever going to go away. You know what I mean? Yes, things have improved, and people are more aware, and, uh, more aware, and, and and hopefully educated a little bit better. But it's still it's still happening. And I, and to be honest, unless you know what I mean, unless somebody really does something about it, and instead of finding clubs and putting teams behind closed doors, 
for me, that doesn't it doesn't stop it. You know what I mean? If you took points off some money or relegated teams or, or really hit teams or countries, you know what I mean? Banned them from tournaments. You know what I mean? Not just not just play, make them play behind closed doors. It doesn't doesn't have an impact. You know what I mean? Because sometimes, like we're seeing in um, in in Germany and we will in the Premier League, behind closed door games can can impact both teams, not just the team which which is getting punished. So you know what I mean? For me, it's it shouldn't. It, it, it needs to be looked at. I, I agree with you. I think there's a, there's a much more need for a, a greater zero tolerance approach to it. I, I like the fact that the players now take it upon themselves in an organised way with the coach to walk off the pitch. You know, it's, I remember having a conversation with a couple of players when we were playing a game in Eastern Europe maybe ten years ago, where we, on, on the lunchtime meal for a night game, saying if you if the players get abused today, I will be down by the tunnel. And if you want to come off, all you need to do is signal to me and I will support you completely and ensure the organisation supports you completely if you want to what, come off. What do you think, though, the fallout would have been, though, Adrian? Because that's, that's, that's my only concern. Well, I think that's why the protocols that are in place now are more important because, actually, you've got the referee first and say, have you heard that, if you hear anything? And you're putting the referee who's in charge of the game in a position where he has to take control under the protocols that are in place. Then you get a Tano announcement for the crowd to say it stops now, and the next moment it happens, you're off the pitch. Mm. And that's a protocol approach, and that's that's a much more organised way of dealing with it. And then your penalties that come in afterwards, combined with the education piece, and it's a combination of all those three things, is the only way to move forward with this. Yeah, totally agree. Totally agree. Because for me, it's got to be, there's got to be a, a further education, you know, that the people, you know, I mean, you, you're the troublemakers, run about, run about violence at football games and hooligans, you know what I mean? That that that, 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 that didn't seem that it was going to end and it went away and then it came back and then it's gone away again, you know what I mean? So hopefully, you know what I mean? We can, we can just stem the bad things what are happening in, in society, in football, because, you know what I mean? We don't want people to start making a statement in, in, in the big games or, um, and when football does come back, because you know, what I mean, we've we've had we've had too long without without having fans, and the last thing we want to do is have more more yeah. games without any fans there, because it just it just defeats your object. Agreed. Indeed, indeed, indeed. It's um, I just I hope that the next occurrence, because I would like to say that hopefully we'll never get another occurrence of it, but we will. We all know this, unfortunately. Um, what I would like to see is that the next time it happens is both teams together walk off and i think i believe i believe that i think i said this to you before andy if it's a big team or a bit unfortunately if it's a big team it'll have a bigger impact than a than a lower league team but if both teams uh walk off in unity together and say no enough is enough with social media the way it is now it will you know it'll be around the world in seconds um and i do believe that that's the the only way that we're going to get through and maybe make this finally, uh, you know, make this problem go away. I totally agree. Totally agree. Totally agree. Because this, you know, what I mean, there's been loads of different statements, and especially social media being as big as it is, you know, what I mean, that you're not, you're not born, you're not born racist. You know, what I mean, you, you, you know, what I mean, you're educated and you're taught about racism. You know, what I mean, so you're choosing to do it, however, however old you are, you know. So it's. It's it's about society. It's about education. It's about the way that you're brought up. It's about um, you know what I mean. Use of huge butter fan. You know what I mean. That's just racist abuse. And and it's not just players as well, by the way. You know what I mean. Supporters who go to games have a, have a right to go to a game thinking they're going to be safe 
um, thinking they're going to go there to watch a game of football. You know, so, you know what I mean? We, we, we are just um, looking at players here, you know what I mean? But it's happening on the, in, in the stands, in the stadiums, to and from, from games as well. So, you know what I mean? Fans have the right, same as players do, to go and be safe inside a football stadium. Absolutely, 100%. You're good. If you want to ensure that you're taking young people, in particular the football or any live event, you don't want to then be exposing those people, young people, to that kind of behaviour. And that's one of the problems that we had in the late 70s and early 80s, mid 80s, when crowds fell through the floor because of violence, but also because of the racial undercurrent that was taking place in a stadium. So, you know, it's all part of the big package here. Education is absolutely crucial to this. Punishments are absolutely vital to it. And just continually working at it as an industry as to how you deal with it when things take place. Couldn't, couldn't put it better. Couldn't put it better. Uh, right, I think it's time to uh, move on, Adrian, about and just have a real good look at your hugely successful career. So I'm going to start. I'm going to start obviously because uh, we crossed paths. Um, obviously, I joined. I joined Middlesbrough in '96. I left school um, and joined uh, Essen Park first year at the Riverside. Um, oh, it was Andrew. You what, sorry? Oh, 95, 96, sorry, 95, 90, yeah, 96, I made me JV, so 95, yeah, so 95. So, um, obviously, I we, we crossed paths there, so why did you why did you start at Middlesbrough? What made, you, what made it appealing to get into football? Well, like you, all I ever wanted to be was a footballer, like millions of people. Um, in the end, I wasn't good enough. Um, still hurts me to say that. <laughs> but, uh, um, then I sort of drifted around. I, I did some... Uh, interviewing for the match program um, back in the late, very late 80s, early 90s. And then when when Steve Gibson took over the club outright, he created a PR department just as Brian was being appointed as the manager and the new stadium was announced that it was going to be built. And I got involved in doing a lot of writing during that year um, as a freelancer. And then I got offered a full-time job at the start of the season. We were moving into the Riverside, just as you were joining, I was joining full-time. Yeah. And, you know, from my own point of view, it was just a dream come true because it's as good as I was going to get to be involved in football, which is, you know, probably like you, I was the, I was the kid in the street at the age of four, five, six years old. It was wherever you went, I had a ball. I was always kicking a football around. I wanted, I had every kit you could ever lay your hands on. I wanted to be a footballer, so it was just a dream to be involved in it. It was well. It was a it was a dream for for me to uh, to train at Essen Park. You know what I mean? Because obviously I'd I'd been on the terraces. I'd seen all the games. I used to go with my dad, and um, so to to not get the opportunity to play there was was a little bit heartbreaking. Because obviously I wanted to uh, probably live the dream for my dad, but obviously the, the the club was moving in a in a rapid pace and and going to pastures new and and growing as um as 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 we all as we all see uh, see this current day. But um, obviously you left the club in uh, I believe ninety seven. Um, to go and join the FA, so obviously to leave a club which was growing places and and growing really fast. You know, what I mean, obviously was that a, was that a risk? Because you know, what I mean, I see the club was obviously going places. I've seen the players that they were bringing in, so obviously potential risk. Yeah, of course, there's a risk, but there's a risk in many things that you do. There's also a risk in sitting back and not making a decision and doing nothing. And for me, um, you know, I'm quite an ambitious person. And as much as I love Middlesbrough Football Club, um, I'd always been someone who was a massive England fan. You know, I was 
the Thado had the England team wallpaper in about 1978, my bedroom wall, all the England kits. Um, you know, and I, I, I just, for me, it was just a step up. I didn't, I, I applied for a job that I didn't expect to get. I'd never lived outside Middlesbrough before. And before I know it, I'm, I've got like a month that I've then got to be relocating as a married man with my wife working up in Middlesbrough down to London. And we had a really challenging first year because I was living in all sorts of random accommodations while we were keeping a house up in the northeast. Yeah. Um, you know, but I've got to say it's the best thing that I ever did in my life because it, it's made my career. And within nine months of joining the FA, I beat my World Cup. So, so obviously before you joined, obviously it was it was well up to up to the date before nineteen sixty six was the most um, successful tournament. Obviously England had took part in so the the Euros, the Euro ninety six. So yes, was it daunting joining though after on the back of that success? Or was that the was that the catalyst? Oh, I don't know. I just listen. I I got married that summer. It was a really exciting summer with Middlesbrough with the signs of the likes of Ravenelli and Emerson. We just had Janino, but. The club was getting relegated, don't forget, in the in you know in spring of eight, of ninety seven, and that's when soon after that the the job advert came out. And for me, it was just when I saw it, I thought I've got to have a crack at this. Uh, I didn't, and I said, genuinely didn't expect to get the job. And in, in all honesty, I, you know, even though I'd, I'd got a fair bit of experience under my belt at Middlesbrough, I was nowhere near ready and equipped to deal with dealing with the national media in the way that I was dealing with. Um, with with the FA and with England, which is just on a different it's a different stratosphere compared to anything else that you'd find outside maybe two or three clubs in the Premier League. Um, but the World Cup in '98 was the best thing that happened because I developed my relationships with a lot of the people who are the key journalists now or key sports editors that are around in, in England at the moment, and that stood me in such great stead. Great stead, and you know the the journey from there was just it was. Amazing, you know, something I could never have dreamt of. So France, France '98. You know, what I mean, notorious um, for David Beckham getting sent off. Um, obviously, the tournament ending in um, yet again more heartache with the with the penalty shootout defeat. Um, how how was the fallout for you about what happened with David Beckham? Because obviously, that must have kept you um, a little bit more busier than you would have liked in your summer. Because obviously, with the with the season finishing, you know, what I mean, from that day, you probably expected it. Um, a, a week or two off with um, after having a, a busy World Cup, but slightly different then, Andy, because I was uh, in in '98. I was still very. I was junior member of the team, so I just didn't have anywhere near the level of pressure. We had people like David Davis, who you'll be aware of, who was the you know the, the, the top man in my area of the organisation, one of the senior people in the organisation, and you had another couple of people in there as well. So I just wasn't under the same level of pressure that that became my role as I moved forward. And also, back in 98, we didn't have 24-hour rolling news like Sky Sports News. That came in after 98. We didn't really have the internet in the way that we, we, we had soon afterwards, and we certainly didn't have social and digital media. So the whole landscape changed dramatically within the years after that tournament. So that was a bit of a kind of free pass for me in that tournament. I learned a lot. I really enjoyed it. It was the most relaxed I've ever been at a tournament, and I built up relationships that I never you know, could dream of that have lasted me so long down my career as well. So I look back so fondly at that tournament. I, I never got anything like the freedom again moving forward after that. So you've been to uh, World Cup 98, Euros in 2000, World Cup 2002, Euros in 2004, World Cup 2006, 2008, 2010, uh, 2012. Um, what's 
what was the highlight? Which one? Which one was the best, and why? What was the reason behind it standing out? They're, they're all totally different. France, for the reasons I've explained, um, Belgium and Holland in two thousand, and I was on a different a different job where I was on in effect Hooli Watch because there was so much violence going on, and I wasn't with the team. I was working with I'd just done the Euros with you in Slovakia, yeah. the twenty ones. Um, I'd been the World Cup with the under twenties in Nigeria in nineteen ninety nine. And then in 2000, I went to Belgium and Holland with the ticketing people, with our security people, with the police, with the home office and the foreign office. Totally different experience. Learned a lot. Saw a lot that people would have. <laughs> um, really interesting experience. Very 2002 well. in Japan was a, an amazing time. Again, I was still, I was, I was more senior than I'd been in France, but I wasn't the most senior person in my area. Um, I loved Japan from a cultural experience. It was just so, so different. It was the start of the golden generation, a tag that they never gave themselves. Yeah. Great players, great ride. Came unstuck in the second half against um, a top Brazilian team. Oh, yeah. um, so, okay, disappointment that we didn't get all the way, but it was still a great tournament for us. And it felt that it was the start of the journey was spent during that period. 2004 in Lisbon. Best tournament insofar as still a lot of ex a lot of responsibility. Great team, in my opinion, the team that the, the one England team that I worked with that should have won a tournament. And had Wayne Rooney not broke his foot in the early stages of that game when we were one 0 up in the quarterfinal, mm -hmm. I remain convinced that we win that tournament. So that was yeah. great. Just a brilliant summer of it, it was superb. I became the director of comms after a bit of a fallout that occurred after that tournament. Um, so from then on, Germany in 2006 was incredibly intense. The pressure because of the expectancy on the team was massive. And I don't think we could breathe in that tournament. It, it was, I love German football, as I've said already. I love German cities to travel to. So there was a lot of positives for me, but it, it was, I was so in, in, in the zone myself in my own um, work mode during that tournament. 2008, we never qualified, but I still went to that tournament with with Fabio. So we spent with him in that regard. So how did how how did uh, how did the FA cope with that then? Because obviously that's the only time that you didn't weren't involved directly in a in a in a major tournament. It's in your time. Well, we, so. we absolutely got pulverized from the minute that we didn't qualify with that game against Croatia at Wembley. Um, that then led us to, that was the first time I was ever involved in a recruitment process of the senior team manager directly. Um, I was one of the four people involved in the recruitment of, of Fabio. The, the, the key thing there was that we had to qualify for the World Cup in South Africa. Yeah. We had to, from a football credibility point of view, but we also had to financially, we couldn't really afford an organisation. You know, with all of our commercial deals in place, we couldn't afford not to qualify for that World Cup. So we had to go and get someone who was recognised as an elite winner in world football. Um, and there's not there's not a long list of those coaches when you, when you start going to the table. And then there's a, not a long list of coaches who you might be able to attract, even with the salary that people say, oh, you're paying too much money. In relation to club football, international football managers, you know, don't always get the same level as the, the elite club football managers. And with England, we had the additional trade-off that, International coaches would only come and work for us if we paid them big money because of the exposure of the job. 
You know, the, the interference in their private life was massive in comparison. <laughs> On that on that point, then, so we've got a uh, we've got a question we've got a question from Martin on the chat, which says, uh, "Can you ask Adrian what his relationship was like with the press whilst managing Sven? I bet he kept him busy." Uh, yes, <laughs> it is. Um, but I've, you know, I'm, I love working with Sven. I spent some time with him just before lockdown over in Sweden. You know, we're we're very close. Um, I've got massive respect for him. He was a really professional person. His private life was something that he wasn't used to having the level of exposure in the media, despite, you know, working, managing the Serie A champions like Lazio or managing Roma, managing um, Sampdoria with some seriously big players, managing Benfica in Portugal. He just, you know, he wasn't, he'd never experienced that level of scrutiny before. Thankfully for me, he, he, he didn't, um, he didn't actually get affected by it. So while we had to deal with it, and I don't think it was particularly um, good for his image or good for the FA's image that it was frequently dominating front pages of newspapers that, you know, whatever may have been going on in his private life, it actually didn't really throw him off course other than in 2006 in the January when he got stung by the news of the world, which resulted in him you know, in effect, losing his job immediately after the World Cup, but being announced in the February, that may have had a residual impact on how things operated in Germany negatively, for all we know. Okay. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, obviously, Adrian, you've worked with some of the best managers in world football, you know, your Fabio Capello, your Kevin Keegan, Sven Goran Eriksson. Um, Roy Hodgson, I count as internationally at least, he did very well abroad, and uh, as I thought, he did quite well as an international manager. Uh, I think it was uh, James in the chat asked, uh, "Who's the best manager you've worked with?" Uh, he also wants after that wants to know Andy, who's the best manager that you've played under, and um, he wanted to know who my favourite Cardiff manager was, which is Eddie May. Uh, so Adrian, yeah, who was the the best manager you've worked alongside? I think. I was so excited when we appointed Capello because of his record. And he still did brilliantly for England for the first 18 months in qualifying. Um, you know, and he transformed that team for him and gave it confidence very quickly. People forget that. Obviously dampened by the performance in South Africa. Um, but sitting and watching a game for me, travelling against with Capello was an education. Just watching how he picked things so quickly. Um, I, I actually liked all the England managers I worked with. Um, I said Sven, from a personal relationship, was unbelievable. I had a really good relationship with Roy. I was one of the people that appointed Roy. So, again, worked a good, respectful interaction with Roy. The current manager, Gareth Southgate, who you know I've known for many, many years, as is Andy. Um, Gareth, for me, is the epitome of what we should have as the national team coach. His values, his style, his communicating communication ability, everything about Gareth is absolutely spot on. And I was, you know, I was pleased that I was part of the group that appointed him as the under-21 coach. And I would also add, and we've got a lot of people from Wales following this tonight, Chris Coleman was an unbelievable manager with that Wales team that I, I loved his man management style. I wasn't around the team directly with him a great amount of time, but the time I did spend with him, I, I saw how good a man manager he is and how good at relieving the pressure in a tournament environment he is. So 
that's a bit of a snapshot of many of the managers I've worked with. You must excuse me while I just go and get a glass of water. Of course, yeah. Um, Andy, what's, what about you? What's the best manager that you've uh, worked with? Obviously, Dave, apart from Dave Jones. Yeah, apart from Dave. Um, <laughs> um, to be honest, I've been really lucky, you know, but for different reasons. I think uh, Brian Robson gave me my debut at Middlesbrough. You know what I mean? I'll, I'll always remember um, the gaffer for doing that. I've worked under Sam Allardyce, who went on, on, on to be England manager. And I'm going to ask about ask Adrian about that and about, obviously, uh, what happened there. Um, uh, Steve Bruce successful Premier League manager and Chris Wilder uh, when I towards the end of my career at Halifax Town so I'd probably say those those kind of managers for me had a, had a huge impact and got the best out of me and um, but Brian Robson for me because he gave me my debut you know what I mean even Lenny at, Middles, uh, at Car- Middlesbrough and Cardiff uh, you know what I mean I, I've still I've total respect for and, uh, and things but you know when um, yeah when, when managers don't give you um, what you want i.e. play you um, to try to sell you or do sell you you know what I mean yeah. you lose a little bit of respect you know what I mean and, and, yeah. and I've been quite vocal about Dave Jones and uh, and Steve McLaren but you know when, it's listen, how they deal with it though mate as well isn't it is, it? Yeah. And, and, um, and we just spoke about there about uh, it was 2008 when England didn't qualify uh, mm. for the World Cup and uh, Steve McLaren was uh, was the manager and people say uh, Wally with the brolly whatever and do you know what I have got utmost respect for the man taking that job. And I was sat watching the game, desperate for England to qualify. And when they didn't qualify, it wasn't a case of, oh, I'm glad they failed because you're a manager. I was absolutely devastated. You mm. know what I mean? Yes, I've got my gripes because of the way that uh, things left uh, at Middlesbrough with him. But at the same time, I wanted him to succeed so so much. I wanted him to win the World Cup. Um, <coughs> I wanted him to basically back, yeah. So everyone but Dave Johnson. <laughs> yeah. So, what what Cardiff managers did you play in there all together? Um, well, Corky, uh, Corky was due to sign me, uh, but then lost his job at Wigan. Did he get got beat four nil the week after the beat Leeds in the FA Cup? So uh, he lost his job, and then Lenny took over. So Lenny signed me. Um, uh, Dave took over, sold me. Oh no, sort of. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, listen. It's football, football, and you know yeah. what I mean. You, 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 I, I, you have your gripes, and it's. Um, if I was, um, if I had somebody to talk to, like uh, like Adrian, before I sent that tweet out uh, about Dave Jones, then things might have been a little bit different. Yeah, of course. You just never know, do you? Um, but you're young, you make mistakes. Yeah, apo- I, I never, I've never apologised, but I, but that's another story. <laughs> um, <laughs> So Adrian Andy just men- mentioned in passing there when he was talking about Steve McLaren, you uh, mentioned Brodie Gate, and I did want to ask you about that because um, as a Welshman, so I've got absolutely no kind of dog in the race, if you like. Um, I found it fascinating that like after this really bad result, and I think it was failure to qualify. Correct me if yeah. I'm wrong. Yeah, Croatia. Um, three, three, two, the, I think as well, wasn't it? Yeah. The focus was on the manager having an umbrella in the rain and it was used as a way to ridicule him. Um, look, to me, it didn't make a great deal of sense and I felt that it made the football, uh, the, the team overall or everything kind of surrounding it, the fans, the media, I felt like it made it worse in terms of how the outside would view it. How did that, how did you feel during that time? Because it must have been, you know, obviously difficult from a football point of view anyway, but to add in that type of coverage. Yeah, it's a pretty stressful time. I mean, I would say that 
I actually really enjoyed working with Steve as a person. Um, and I think the players were very much with Steve as well. Uh, it obviously didn't work out. And sometimes it doesn't work out. But the personal abuse that Steve took during the time he was the England manager was pretty disgraceful at times. He took more personal abuse than, than anybody else. And I, look, I, I, I knew Steve. Um, off, you know, my, my wife knew his wife. They travelled to Japan together to watch the World Cup. We knew his kids. You know, and I, I was always in the back of my mind thinking, blimey, he's got a young family and some of that stuff that he's getting. Some of the stuff that went on earlier on when he was the England manager because it wasn't always going great. You know, that Steve could deal with the criticism of his football um, and the criticism of his managerial style. It's when it went into <coughs> caricatures and, you know, cartoons in newspapers that it gets, that becomes really personally vindictive. Yeah, and for those people who are around, you know, it's not just myself, but there's other people on the comms team or the team operations staff or you know other senior figures. It can be really hard. And sometimes, I mean, we went to play a game in Barcelona against Andorra, and the atmosphere was just so poisonous going into the game with our own fans, and it really had been whipped up going into it. And it, you know, I remember that game. We couldn't eat at half time. It was so intimidating. We actually. And she would all of our non-playing subs didn't even come into the stand for the second half because we were scared as to what might happen. You know, and we were sitting there ourselves pretty worried because it was so so toxic. Um, the Wally with the Broly moment, I mean, I I was in my seat high up in the gods at Wembley when that I first saw Steve appear with the umbrella. And I was sat next to one of the main sports editors of one of the Red Tops and some other influential media people. And I'm texting everyone I could think of who was down that dugout area saying, get that umbrella away from him, because I knew what would come. And it showed you kind of where we were in the game at that point. Hmm. In the big picture, look, he was always going to lose his job if we didn't qualify and that's what happened. The next day, he gave an unbelievably magnanimous press conference that he set up himself before him and he spoke and everyone shook his hands afterwards but the following day there was a picture of him on the I think it was the front page could be in the back page of one of the papers of him walking out of the hotel and there was just like the the, the football pound of one money floating around over his head or something and it was just like it was quids in trust me Steve one thing Steve wanted more than anything was to qualify the team and it's just I don't think it's like that now I think it's matured um, possibly by the way that Gareth has dealt with things. But it, it's it's not pleasant for anyone who has to go through that. And we've seen situations with, you know, the situation with Caroline Flack, probably more recently. Nobody knows the impact it has on people's private lives when you're getting that level of abuse. And that's what I said earlier, you know, you can be at club football, unless you are at Man United or something like that, or Liverpool, you very rarely get that level of scrutiny that you get with the England manager. So the preparation for that job is really, really important. So then moving on then, Adrian, what about uh, Sam Allardyce then? Because obviously it didn't end in, um, in in a great way for Sam. I played for Sam at Bolton, you know what I mean? So I, I know him you know, I know him pretty well. Uh, I've got full respect for him. Brilliant manager, you know what I mean? He always had a, a very good team around him. He was always one step ahead of the game and... Um, but unfortunately, obviously, things outside of football 
uh, meant that he lost his job. How did that impact on the FA? Um, well, I didn't. I'd gone by then. I left after. Oh, okay. I left at the end of 2014, so I was actually working with with the Welsh um, around that sort of time. To be fair, so I didn't. You know, I know I know Sam personally, but I don't. Yeah. You know, I don't know the whole ins and outs of that. Okay. Um, we just had a question in the live chat, just because you mentioned I've about uh, Chris Coleman. Uh, so Craig says, um, you mentioned Craig Coleman. Uh, how good a man-manager was he? Uh, but also the the way the red wall of fans are so behind Wales, it always appeals, appears as if England haven't got that support. It always seems negative. Uh, did you find... Did you find that? And what could England do to get the fans? And I would add the media on side. Well, I think they've done it. I think Gareth's approach has really turned things around dramatically. I think he's got the players on board with him. So they're all aligned inside the England camp. And that's part of the whole DNA process. Um, it's very open. Um, and I think the fans have you know, supported it that way. I think that the, it, it's, it, it ebbs and flows. I mean, the, the tournament in Japan I mentioned, the support for the team in Japan at that World Cup was breathtaking. You know, there was there was not a hint of negativity there. Um, even in Brazil, when we obviously dipped out in the group stage, we played the final group game. Um, I mean, I've gone on bluntly with the game was against now in Belo Horizonte, and the players spent 15 minutes at the end where the, the most of the England fans were congregated, you know, applauding them, and it was you know there was a equal level of support. There are moments when you do get. Well, it's hard because I think, look, England, we've not won anything since 1966 and we've only won the one tournament in 1966. I'm not sitting here as someone who is little England and saying we should be winning the World Cup all the time, we should be winning the European Championship. But there is an expectation on England. We don't lose many games. The games we tend to lose are the games that are sort of big knockout games in major finals. That's generally our record and the odd friendly. You know, Spain lost one qualifying game in six years as manager. So I think when you do, I think when the mood music changes, when the fans or the media have grown tired with the manager or they don't believe in the manager, that's when the relationship with the fans weakens. But I've also been through periods where Spain was incredibly popular. Kevin was very popular when he first came in. Capello for the first two years was unbelievably popular. You know, it, it just ebbs and flows. Is this the first time, though? You just spoke about, about the DNA. You know what I mean? That, that Gareth's obviously not just focusing on the on the on the on the foot on the full squad. He's he's, he's looked at um, the England youth squads and and they've and they've been very successful. They've won World Cups. You know what I mean? He's he's and he's focusing down the lines. He's thinking about the future, not just about tomorrow. Uh, and I think that's obviously important. As being an Englishman and an English fan, I'm, I'm so desperate to to see them win a, a major tournament in my lifetime. And and I hope I do get the opportunity to see that. But you know what I mean? I think this is probably the first time in a long time. I've got that opportunity, and I'm not saying it's going to happen in the next tournament. I think just in the in the long term, with the with the with the proper DNA, I think I've got we've got a better opportunity. I think when you talk about DNA, I mean it's. But when I became the managing director of the England setup, one of the first things I did was implement a monthly meeting that had the England manager, the technical director, the 21s coach, the women's coach, um, the head of uh, the development teams. All around the table with the chairman, the chief executive, myself, team operations, commercial, everyone around the table. So you're discussing all, all issues. 
That then suddenly or quickly merged and we got Dan Ashworth in. Yep. And Dan coming in, working, there was Trevor's appointment. Um, Dan was the start of the DNA process. He brought in Matt Crocker, who's now gone back to Southampton. Gareth was already in the organisation. Then, then he left for a short period, then he came back as 21's coach. And we had a guy called Dave Redden, who'd worked with the RFU, and worked with the Olympics, very strategic type person, and a number of others. And that built the DNA. They did a lot of talking behind the scenes with players, current and past. They talked to the media, they talked to lots of other stakeholder groups, and they formulated a plan. And the plan is the same as if you were going to a club. You know, I look at Norwich City as a really good example. They've got a clear DNA. Brentford have got a clear DNA. And people might look at it, you're just talking buzzwords. DNA is your identity, and it's what are your values? What does it mean to be a player or be part of that organisation? What are you all trying to achieve? What is your purpose within that group? You know, what is your playing style? You know, how do we all support each other? Everything that goes with being part of an organisation that is truly established, that has a long-term sustainable plan. And it was quite clear that Spain had done that, and that resulted in their success. Look, you've got to produce good players. If you don't produce good players, you ain't going to win anything in the end, and you've got to have good coaches. But if you get all that right and you have the good players, you've got to make sure you're then maximising out with the players you have at your disposal. And the plan is what England have been doing at the development level, and hopefully that will then transfer itself into success on the pitch. On the flip side, you look at the way Chris managed that group of players with an absolute elite star in Gareth Bale and top players like Aaron Ramsey playing at the top of the game in a tournament, and they went damn close with a great set of players, with a great spirit. A question I'm desperate to ask though about that tournament, Adrian. You know what I mean? So I'll be brutally honest. Uh, England played Wales, didn't they, in that tournament? Yep. England won 2 1. Yep. Si, is that right? Is that right? England yeah, won 2 1. Don't remember, mate. I'm sure they did. Um, well, obviously, Wales finished top of the group. England won 2 1. Um, what were your thoughts? Did you do, what were your thoughts when that game was going on? Because obviously, you've, you've just left an organization we worked for a very long time. You're now helping a, a different organization, but obviously, so how was your, how was your heart and your head? Question for who do you think I wanted to win? <laughs> Basically, I just didn't want to answer. I didn't want to ask you that brutally. Who do you think I wanted to win? England. Sorry? I think you're a, it's a profes professional, Adrian, so you wanted Wales to win. Draw. I was desperate for Wales to win. Sorry, 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 sorry. Desperate. Still desperate because uh, let's, let's revert back to what I've just said. The point was... England won two one, so let's put that on the bed. I was, uh, I'd have been, I'd have been more than happy at one one to be fair. But yeah, I there want, you go. See, sitting on the fence. I wanted, I wanted Wales. No, I wanted Wales to do. I wanted Wales to win that tournament. I felt part of that journey, and they made me feel part of that journey. Um, <laughs> listen, now, and listen, I was only joking, by the way. Please, I'm, I'm adopted Welsh, so don't have a go at me. I'm, I promise, I'm only joking. I love, I love, I love you all. <laughs> um, so, right, uh, Adrian, you, you spoke earlier about a uh, golden generation. You know, what I mean, this is obviously it's a big, big bugbear. You know what I mean? Because obviously, I came through uh, in two thousand, played in the Euros uh, for the twenty ones, and 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 the golden generation for me was just just beginning. Then we'd lost a lot of players to go and play in the full squad. Um, do you think that um, the group of players uh, underachieved along the way? Because obviously, we weren't successful as. 
going into the later stages, or do you think they were unlucky? What's, what's your thoughts on the whole thing? Because obviously the press painted a different picture, fans paint a picture. But what's your what's your own personal opinion? Yeah, we underachieved. I'm not saying that we had a right to win the tournament that we were in, but uh, I I don't believe that the Italian team that won it in 2006. You know, that you're not talking about the Spanish team that went on to win a variety of tournaments. You're not talking about Germany that came through, you know, five or six years later and onwards. That Italian team was a decent team. You had some great players like Buffon in goal, like Cannavaro, some great players in there. Yeah, yeah. We we had some really top players as well. When you when you reel off the names of, you know, Ferdinand, Terry, Campbell, Ashley Cole, Gary Neville. Owen Hargreaves in that World Cup in Germany, by the way, was outstanding. David Beckham, Paul Scholes previous to that tournament. Frank Lampard, Stephen Gerrard, Michael Owen, Wayne Rooney. That is an elite group of players that should have gone beyond the quarterfinals. Add to that, what I would say is, I thought that they didn't always get the best of luck. As I say, Rooney's injury in 2004, you can't account for that. He was the best player of the tournament. And I think we would have gone on and won that tournament, I think, for what it was worth. In 2006, we got out of 10 men in the quarterfinal. We weren't playing brilliantly, but we were actually a better team all day. And we missed a chance in extra time to put the game away. Two penalty shootouts. Mm. You win through those penalty shootouts, history's a, di- a very different book to reflect on. Mm. So, just so you know, I can see you smiling. Yeah, I was getting. It's, I was, it's, a, I was, it's a video. It's a video call. Oh, damn it. I was looking for my violins <laughs> um, sound effect. I just couldn't find it. <laughs> no. Um, you mentioned uh, Wayne Rooney there, Adrian. Um, I'm fascinated by Wayne Rooney as a as a person, as a player. I find him really interesting character to to watch and listen to as well. I find his interviews really captivating these days, uh, as he's matured. But I wanted to ask you what he was like particularly as a, as a young man, when he broke onto the scene, you know, 17, 18, he was at Manchester United in a very short space of time, mm-hmm. obviously made his debut for Everton at 16. Um, how did he de- deal with the pressure? Because it wasn't long before he was a linchpin and a leader, at not just Manchester United, but, you know, but at England at a very, very young age. Look, when was under pressure from the minute he walked through the door into the England setup. Um, and he was still a, you know, he just he was basically a schoolboy. Mm. You know, he, the, the great thing is that he, he commanded the respect of his, of the other players because of his ability and his confidence in training immediately. And even though he made his debut against Australia at the beginning of 2003 at West Ham, um, one of his early games was against Turkey in a massive qualifier at Sunderland, and he was outstanding that night. He was he bossed the game like he was a 25-year-old who'd got 100 caps under his belt. Um, off the pitch, he's a he's a really nice guy. And I know that you know there's always like everybody there's, there's tabloid stories and so forth, but um, when it's a real pleasure to work with. Um, very level-headed, not an arrogant person in any shape or form, incredibly popular with staff and players, really helpful to people, um, would always front up for the media, by the way, at a time when he wasn't doing a lot with Manchester United because 
Man United players didn't do a lot with the media um, in club time, but with England, he always pointed up, as did most of those players during that generation, by the way. But Wayne, I've seen Wayne as quite a young man sit around the table, you know, as well as doing the big set piece press conferences, but sit around the table with maybe 12 of the chief football writers, which can be quite intimidating to a lot of people. Um, but in a non aggressive way, really dominate the conversation. Um, so I'm not surprised we're reading the material we're reading from him now in his Sunday Times column because he's actually far far brighter than people perhaps thought he was going to be or gave him credit for unfairly. Um, you know, he's a real football thinker. He always has been. And he's got a real chance of being a very good manager because he's he, he does think deeply about it and he always has. Adrian, did you need to, obviously when 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 players like him came through at a young age? Did you need to uh, be extra careful with exposing them to to the press? Obviously, with with England, cause like you said there, you said Man United didn't do a lot, um, and, and they've never done a lot really with with with, with interviews and stuff with players. You know, what I mean, I think it happened with, with Beckham and, and the class of '92 that all all, all those lot uh, never really did a lot of interviews. But did you have to protect those kind of players from exposing? Yeah, them? Yes, but, I mean, it's 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 ironic now that there's a lot of deserving praise for the England setup because they're very open. But we we were working at a time where most players didn't do a lot of interviews, so they, the only time they did a lot of interviews was with England. Yeah. Um, with Wayne specifically, because he was such a phenomenon when he broke through, we worked very closely with his agent, Paul Stratford. And I remember quite early on, probably only three or four games into his England career, he did his first set piece uh, with the media. And it was... You know, it was very tightly managed because it had to be. Um, but he, you know, at, at that point, you know, Wayne was, like I say, he was quite a um, quietly spoken, quite, you know, you're obviously shy. Blimey, you know, you, you're nervous. I don't care what anyone says. Yeah. You're still you're nervous when you go and speak to the media for the first time in that group. Mm-hmm. Um, so we, we kind of, it was probably a little bit more choreographed than you would normally do it. But um, I think it was important that we sort of crossed that line where he'd, he'd done his first interview and he didn't really need you know, overly coaching or briefing beyond that win. You know, you, you always try with any player before they go and see the media, not to overload them with too much information, but you know, when you were in the 21s, if I was putting someone like Stephen Gerrard or Frank Lampard up to see the media, and we probably like, we, we still had some good press coverage during those times. Yeah. I would, I would pro- provide them the night before with the sort of questions they were likely to be asked, predicting what they'd be asked, but not telling them what to say. Then we might have five, ten minutes before the interview where we'd go through a few things, which is what we did with the England seniors. Like, you know, for example, in Germany, the press centre was about a ten-minute drive from the hotel. So I would sit in the car with whoever was going to the media conference, as would my colleagues with whoever else, and we'd just chat through what they might say to certain things. But... The worst thing you can do is try and tell them what to say. And I've been guilty of it occasionally. You've got to let people be authentic when speaking to the media, but then your job is to make sure that you try to avoid them being, you know, stitched up, which for all of the perception is very few and far between. Um, one thing I'd, I'd love to know, you know, I mean, obviously, there's, there's, there's um, obviously the press are, are interested in um, Sven Goran Emerson's life potentially, you know what I mean, and, and go hounding for a story. But how does that, how did that affect Adrian Bevington? You know what I mean? So how did that affect you in, in, in your kind of life? You know what I mean? So you're obviously dealing with somebody else's life. Then how did that affect you in any kind of way? Well, you know, you, you tend to care for the individual you're working with. 
And so, you know, I was, I was quite a combative person during that period. So, you know, I had a lot of conversations with people that generally were private with journalists where, you know, they could be quite forthright, occasionally aggressive conversations. Always tried to avoid the legal route if we could avoid it. So I just don't believe in that, um, if you can avoid it. Um, you know, but I remember there was an occasion where when, you know, moving on to Fabio for a minute, whose private life was very different, we wrote to all of the media. After Sven left, we wrote to all the media and said, when Steve got the job, his family was private. He was even the manager, but his, fam his family was private. And we also said the same about Fabio when he came in, and that was respected. You very rarely saw any pictures of any of, of their wives or family or anything like that, yeah? Um, but there was one time where Fabio had been away before an uh, international period down in Sicily where he has a place and um, they've got the, you know, the, the mud treatments there and everything like that. And there's these pictures surfaced of him and his wife with the mud treatments on. And unbeknown to me, they appeared in the, I think it was the News of the World on a Sunday morning. It was the weekend of Bobby Robson's memorial service, which we were organising. And I had to deal with this on the train all the way up to Durham. And to be fair to the news of the world, they were mortified. They'd missed the circular that had gone around that advised them they couldn't use it. They did use it, not in a nasty way, but they used it. And they paid, they, 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 they contributed to uh, Bobby Robson's charity as a, as a gesture of goodwill voluntarily because they knew they'd made a mistake. So it isn't always black and white, you know, nasty things. And look, a lot of the things that got reported on Sven's private life may well have been accurate. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, bang on. Um, okay. Same as uh, Adrian, just to finish this off then, there's a couple of questions in the live chat, which uh, I don't want people to forget, think that I've forgotten. Uh, so Gaz asked, how good was Rio Ferdinand and what was he like to work with? For me... I just think he was, I think he was the best central defender in the world um, in his heyday. That's a personal view, and there's been a lot of them around. But I, I just thought in his pomp, he was an unbelievable player. I also thought with Rio as well that, you know, he's a, he's a very knowledgeable guy. But he was, I used to say he was kind of the glue within that squad because he, um, you know, he played in the north, he played in the south, he had, he was seems to be friends with all different people within the squads that he played within. And he's quite a dominant figure, but he's also got a real light sense of humour as well. Um, you know, Andy, you've played with him, you know, you've been addressing him with uh, him. Rio's Rio's he's Rolls Royce for me. He doesn't doesn't get any better. Doesn't get any better than him, you know what I mean? He's on and off the pitch, he's he's calm, collected, but but confident and arrogant. And I don't mean arrogant in a bad way, you know what I mean? He pulled it off and he knew exactly what he needed to do. And you know what I mean? I, I came across Rio. Rio came to Middlesbrough on trial. Uh, Ron Bourne got uh, got Rio trial at Middlesbrough and he played uh, a, a friendly at Billingham Synthonia. And Rio came as a centre forward. So I played up front with Rio. Um, mm -hmm. And it was just one of those surreal things that you, you see him down the line as the world's most expensive centre half. But he just had that kind of ability that he could just pick things up. And he was, he was going around the country um, impressing people, impressing everybody. Yeah, I think he was already nailed on that he was signing for West Ham, but I just think he wanted to, to go and see what the, the, the rest of the country had out on offer. Um, you know, it wasn't a financial thing, you know what I mean? Because he, he already knew how good he, how good he, he was and how, how potentially good he was going to make it because West Ham's... Um, 
you set up at the time with Joe Cole, Michael Carrick, etc. was always going to be ridiculously strong. So, you know what I mean? He's he just top draw. World class. World class. Absolutely. I think he's the best. As a Welshman, I think he's the best uh, English defender of all time, which I'm sure you know a lot of Englishmen may disagree, but that's just my opinion. Um, Leslie Coates asks, uh, how do all three of us rate John Stones? He says he wouldn't play him in his championship team. Uh, so... I'll just quickly start because my opinion means the least. And I will say <laughs> that uh, I'm not a massive fan. I think he's quite overrated and he wouldn't be the first English defender that I would pick if I was have, had my pick of them, shall we say. Uh, what about you, Adrian? John Stones. I was really, uh, when he first emerged, I think, correct if I'm wrong, he went from Barnsley originally. Yeah. Yep. Um, he was superb as a young player at Barnsley. Then he went to Everton. Yeah. Um, and I, I think he came to World Cup. I think he came to Brazil with us. Certainly, he was in the Miami pre-squad from memory. Uh, he's obviously a gifted footballer. Um, he probably hasn't played as much football over the past few years as, a, as his as he would have wanted to. Um, you know, in that Man City group. Uh, I think the talent's there. I think there's, there's, there could be a lot more to come from John, but he's certainly not not achieve the level of someone like a Rio Ferdinand or a, a John Terry that we've been talking about there. I, I find this, these kind of conversations fascinating because you've got four different people. Leslie's made the comment and that's the question. He's, he's, he's doesn't like him. wouldn't have him in his championship side. You know what I mean? They're, they're overrated. You know what I mean? Uh, John Stones suits Man City better than he would suit Chelsea, for example, because of the way Pep plays, he likes to get on the ball. He likes to he likes to come out and play. He's a he's a he's a Barcelona type of player, but he's also not the kind of player that John Terry was. John Terry was technically not as good as John Stones is, but he's a he's a he's a ten times better defender. And if you could put the two of them together, you'd have an amazing player. But this this is the individuality as as a, as a footballer, and it just makes opinions fantastic. Makes football great. That um, you know what I mean. You give him the ball, John Stones, he can come out and he can play. But because he makes a mistake, he gets crucified every week because he seems to make a lot of them. Yeah, you know what I mean? He does get found out quite a lot because he's he's probably is overplaying. He's not learning from his mistakes. Like Adrian said, you know, that he's he's come through from Barnsley. He's been picked up at Everton. He's got a big money move to uh, to, to Manchester City. He's played for England. You know what I mean? He's not a bad footballer. He's, he's technically excellent. You know what I mean? But for me, he's, sometimes it looks like he's trying to be the real, but he's got different attributes. You know what I mean? Technically on the ball, he's excellent. But he's not the kind of player that... A Rio is a John Terry is even a probably Tim Kale a, a, a Kale for example is that um, Gary Kale. Gary Kale who throws his body in in front of the front of the ball. He's, he's more of a, he's, he's, he's a footballer in half, isn't he? As far as yeah, he's more like Rio than he is Gary Kale or yeah. John Terry. But, uh, you, but like there's Adrian, if you play him with a, a Vincent Company, him with a, a Laporte and a, and a different player at Man City, they complement each other really well, and. I, and I think sometimes that get that gets lost a little bit in translation, and I'm and I'm not here to stick up for him. You know what I mean? I've I've said he's made some horrendous mistakes, and and some in big games as well. But you know what I mean? He's 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 technically excellent. So for me, you know, he's here's a follow up question then from me. Uh, I believe that he's gone backwards under Pep because he's trying so hard to be that central defender, which brings it out and plays the way that Pep wants him to play that I believe the rest of his game has gone backwards uh, on a consistent level. I don't mean necessarily that he's suddenly a bad footballer because he's clearly not. He's very, very talented. But I think at Everton, he was extremely consistent 
and people were comparing him to Rio Ferdinand because of his ability on the ball, but also his consistency. I'm going to go back to Andy's point there, though, Sai, and I'll bow to the footballer as opposed to the non-footballer in myself, in that um, he he's playing at such a high tempo, high-risk game that Manchester City play that I would suggest is probably a higher-risk game than... Well, I mean, Everton did play high-risk as well under Martinez, to be fair, but um, I just think that the way that City play... You know, it kind of does leave the defenders exposed at times because of the, the attacking style of play. So, um, I'm I'm not going to sit here in my position and, and, and hammer a player like John Stone. I think, you know, John John would probably sit there and say he would have liked to have maybe maybe he could have done a bit more by now and be the you know be even more dominant. But he's not had a bad career to be fair today, has he? Fabulous, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Well, I, and I'll also throw in that Everton. He'll have been a lot more busier um, as a defender, so he's, he's concentrating on, on his defending a lot more than he is currently at Man City. And Man City's got the ball, he's seeing a lot more uh, ahead of him than he is defensively, so it's different managers, different style of play. Um, I just I don't think you can compare the two, Everton and Man City's it's chalk and cheese tactics-wise, uh, team-wise, players-wise, you know what I mean? So for me, you know what I mean, he's, 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 he's stepped up because he's he was good enough to step up and... I'm always a believer of cream always rises to the top. So, you know, for me, I think, uh, you know what I mean? That, that, I agree with Adrian said, there's more to come. And hopefully there is because we're on about the national team tonight. And, you know what I mean? If that's going to benefit the national team, then it can only be good for England and, and English football. So, for me, you know what I mean? Yeah, get go, get, get, get going, John, because I, we, want, we want more success for England. If that's with you in the side, then so be it. Absolutely. Um, OK. Uh, so, I know, uh, Andy, you've got... A question for uh, Mr. Barrington to finish us off. So I'll let you take it away. Um, I would just like to know, Adrian, about uh, about the future and what the future holds for Adrian Bevington. You know what I mean? Because obviously, yeah, I was uh, I was there at the start of the journey, uh, and I'd obviously like to know now how it's going to progress on further. Uh, well, good question. At the moment, I'm not 100 percent certain. I'd like to think I'll be um, working in football in some capacity, whether that be in the UK or overseas in the not too distant future. Um, but just, I've been to, it was in a fortunate position. I wasn't obviously predicting that COVID was going to come, but um, no. um, I spent the first part of the year having a lot of different meetings and conversations and just deciding what it is I'm going to do next and hopefully waiting to find the right move that suits me um, and works you know, where I can feel I can uh, be as effective as I possibly can. So I'd like to be part of something, whether it be in a federation or a club or a commercial organisation, where I'm part of a long-term strategy, and you know, we, you know, something can grow and uh, really have, um, you know, success, um, which I'm, I'm desperate to have wherever it is I go to work. Well, I love work, I love football, so hopefully um, that will be around the corner at some point. Uh, I'm sure it will. I'm, uh, I wish you all the luck with it because, you know what I mean, you, you've been absolutely fantastic, you know what I mean, for uh, knowing you for the, all the years that I have, you know what I mean, and I, and I, and I hope it works out, works out for you, mate, really do. Listen, guys, a real pleasure to be on the show tonight. I've really enjoyed it. And great questions um, that have come in for to uh, answer as well from those people who are watching or listening. Indeed. And I'd like to, you know, thank you, Adrian, as well. Thank you for coming on. Andy, thank you for 
coming on as usual. My pleasure. Can I, can, I, can, I, can I can I can I apologise and make sure people don't really like don't don't think that I was uh, being serious about my comments about my Welsh comments. <laughs> loads of Welsh friends. <laughs> He's panicking. He's panicking. I don't want to get abused uh, later on on social media. Can't be bothered. <laughs> I'm tired. I'm tired. I'm tired. Indeed. Tired. Um, also, guys, check out if you go to uh, awaydayapparel.co.uk and uh, check out their latest deals and offers. They've been a great support to the show and the channel. And uh, if you use the code AA Podcast Nation, all in lowercase, that will enable you to get 10% off all orders exclusively. Please. Where are we? These ones. <laughs> exclusively for uh, viewers and listeners of Ace Podcast Nation. He's in the um, group. He's in the chat as well. He's in the chat as Alan. Is he? Oh, there we go. Um, and I'd also just like to add as well that um, if you follow us on social media, you will have noticed a lot of movement and changing over the weekend. Um, what we've done is with Ace Podcast Nation now, that's going to be the hub. And we're separating the shows just with this social media to make it easier for you guys to find the content, football fans to find the football, MMA fans to find the MMA and such. So keep an eye on the social media for the links. But uh, follow at AC Footy Show, which is the, the page for the Andy Campbell Championship Show. And uh, obviously subscribe to youtube.com slash Ace Podcast Nation. That's where all the shows will be live streamed. And uh, shout out and thanks to uh, Black Diamond Sport Sports again. And uh, give them a follow at BD Sports Int on Twitter. And uh, yes, thank you to everyone who's watched, tuned in and uh, obviously downloaded. And li to those listening on Red Army TV for the first time this week, welcome check out youtube.com slash ace podcast nation for all our other shows and uh, we will see you all next week thank you to adrian thank you to andy it's been a pleasure always Podcast Network.